2: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. at and
0: Live from Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah presents Vodgasm 2020. The South Carolina Democratic primary debate. Finally, a state with black voters. To you live.
3: 100% live.
0: Take a seat. Let's do this thing. We're completely live, people. I can prove that we're live. Think of a number. I'm thinking of the same one. All right, the South Carolina Democratic Presidential Debate has just wrapped up. And guys, it was a little crazy.
3: Tom, I think she was talking about my plan, not yours. I think we All were right. talking about math, and it oh, doesn't take oh, two hours well, to do the, the math, because let's talk about let's what talk it adds about up to. You
1: wrote the crime bill Where we
3: that come from, that's called okay. Tommy telecom lately. You didn't write that bill. I, did. I wrote I, that I bill. Wrote bill <laughs> I wrote the
0: bill, <laughs> <laughs> the Violence Women Act, that okay, took you did that. out of the hands of people who okay, abused them. We'll their, have a fact wait, check. Look no, let's look at the fact check. Can I respond to the fact? Nothing is what will happen. Senator Sanders, you're allowed a quick response, and we would like to allow the other Here's the deal. I'm not answer. out of time. You spoke over time and I'm gonna talk. Damn! <laughs> Woo! Yeah, it was wild tonight. I haven't seen white people go at each other that hard since khakis were on sale at Banana Republic. <laughs> it was crazy tonight. But the truth is, it's not surprising that the debate got that hot because the stakes could not be higher, people. This debate is the last one before the South Carolina primary this weekend. And remember, a few days after that is Super Tuesday. That's when 14 states all hold their primaries at the same time. And they do it at the same time because they got a deal on Groupon. So, every candidate tonight needed to do well. But there was one candidate who needed it more than anyone else. Former New York mayor and the only candidate not allowed to ride a roller coaster, Michael Bloomberg.
1: (laughs) The debate was a disaster for Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg, who had a pretty horrible first debate. I think that's a fair statement, right?
0: Bloomberg was awful. Michael Bloomberg fell flat in his face. When Mike Bloomberg was in the last debate, whoa.
1: If you're Mike Bloomberg, you were so bad at that first debate, (laughs) it doesn't matter how much money you're spending. He got
0: hammered in front of 20 million viewers. Yes, Michael Bloomberg was so bad at that first debate, he got slammed by everyone. CNN, NBC, Fox, even The Bachelor. Yeah, last night, Pete told Maddie, he was like, listen, I know I messed up, but not as bad as Bloomberg messed up at the debate. I mean, come on, (laughs) give me a chance. So Mike Bloomberg was praying for an easier debate this time, but it doesn't seem like it worked because right from the start, Bloomberg was already on the back foot.
3: Senator Sanders, we haven't had a national unemployment rate this low for this long in 50 years. Here in South Carolina, the unemployment rate is even lower. How will you convince voters that a democratic
4: socialist can do better than President Trump with the economy?
3: Well, you're right. The economy is doing really great for people like Mr. Bloomberg and other billionaires. Oh!
2: I feel
0: bad for Bloomberg. The question wasn't even about him. He's just minding his business over there. And out of nowhere, like he must be the first billionaire in history to get hit in a drive-by. That's never happened. And Bernie didn't give him a chance. Like, he doesn't mess around. If Bernie was a boxer, he'd be the kind of boxer that would hit you in the locker room before the fight. Just come in and be like, it was gonna happen either way. I'll see you out there. Boom. Come on. Now, if Bernie Sanders was the ass-whipping appetizer, Elizabeth Warren brought the main course.
4: You know who's gonna be in Charleston later this week? Is Donald Trump. Uh, He's gonna be here to raise money for his buddy, Senator Lindsey Graham, who funded... Lindsey Graham's campaign for re election last time? It was Mayor Bloomberg. He dumped $12 million into the Pennsylvania Senate race to help re elect an anti choice right wing Republican senator in 2012. He scooped in to try to defend another Republican senator against a woman challenger. That was me. It didn't work, but he tried hard. <laughs>
0: Damn it! I can't watch, but I gotta watch. <laughs> Man, when it comes to Bloomberg, Elizabeth Warren is relentless. She destroyed him in the first debate. She came after him again tonight. I bet when he got in his car later, she just popped up in the backseat like, oh, and another thing. <laughs> So Bernie kicked off the debate by attacking Bloomberg and his fellow billionaires, right? Then Senator Warren came in, slamming Bloomberg for bankrolling Republicans. And if Bloomberg was worried that he was coming across as a corrupt billionaire, it really didn't help him when he made a really bad slip of the tongue.
3: Let's just go on the record. They talk about 40 Democrats, 21 of those were people that I spent $100 million to help elect that all of the new Democrats that came in, put Nancy Pelosi in charge, and gave the Congress the ability to control this president, I, bought, I, I got them.
0: That's embarrassing. It's not a good look. There are a ton of Democratic candidates that I bought, I mean, that I own, I mean, that I pay, I mean, that I bribed. that's poor people's words, that I supported, that I supported, that I supported. <laughs> that I supported. Bloomberg didn't do himself any favors with that answer. And for two reasons. One, money and politics is one of the things that most people are angry about in this country. And secondly, you probably shouldn't brag about buying people in South Carolina. So it looks like Bloomberg (laughs) is gonna keep reminding us every single debate how much money he's able to spend. And I guess Pete Buttigieg's strategy is to keep reminding us that he would like some money to spend. Grassroots contributions are the lifeblood of my
3: campaign. In fact, I shouldn't miss the opportunity. If you're watching right now and you support my campaign, go to PeteForAmerica.com and chip in. And if you're watching right now and you're a billionaire, I will raise your taxes. But
0: if you'd like to defeat Donald Trump, please go to PeteForAmerica.com and donate the legal maximum of $2,800. You see, folks, that's what happens when you let a teenager join the debate. <laughs> they stop talking about policy and they ask you to raise their allowance. And then after that, he asked Gail King to drop him at home after the debate. Please, my dad canceled my Uber account. <laughs> now, as weird as that moment may have been, one of the strangest moments of the night easily belonged to Amy Klobuchar. You see, in the discussion in and around gun control, everyone was trying to position themselves as the person who could get gun control passed. Now, she was trying to position herself as the one Democrat who is for limiting guns, but also understands gun culture, thanks to a really special family
3: member. We've got to win in the middle of the country. Having someone that can lead the ticket, that can bring people with her, is the way you get gun safety legislation. I look You're at these proposals
2: COVID
4: and say, do they hurt my uncle I'm- Dick in the deer stand? They do not. <laughs>
0: Uncle Dick in the deer stand? <laughs> and where's Aunt Vagina in the beaver hut? <laughs> I, I feel like... I feel like even Uncle Dick was sitting at home watching that, like, I think at a debate, you can call me Richard. I, <laughs> it's a very serious moment. I will say, though, Senator Klobuchar, that is a great campaign slogan, if you think of it. Was just like, leave that dick alone. That's... <laughs> 10% of the vote right there. <laughs> now, you have to remember, this debate was in South Carolina, right? the first state where black voters hold sway. So all the candidates made sure to show everyone that they were down with the brown. Every single policy area in the United States has
3: a gigantic subtext of race. We have a criminal justice system today that is not only broken it is racist
4: we can no longer God. pretend that everything is race neutral
0: there's seven white people on this stage talking about racial
3: justice and but i know in. that if i were black my success would have been a lot harder to achieve
0: yes that's right that's right if i was black i wouldn't have gotten as far because my police would have slammed me against a wall and frisked me And then I would have said, wait, it's me. And they would have said, shut up, Blackie. And then they'd search my pockets and be like, who's $60 billion is this? And I'd be like, it's mine from when I was white. We've heard that before. (laughs) I'm not gonna lie, man. The Democrats did have some interesting ideas around race. It was really interesting to hear them talk about I wish they would talk about it more. Tom Steyer proposed funding black business owners, specifically Latino business owners, people who have been disenfranchised. Amy Klobuchar talked about fair housing. Pete Buttigieg talked about the struggles black people have. It was great to hear. But once the white privilege PowerPoint presentation of the evening was done, <laughs> it was time to get to the main event, going after Bernie Sanders.
4: Can Americans trust that a democratic socialist president will not give authoritarians a free pass?
3: I have opposed authoritarianism all over the world. What I said is what Barack Obama said in terms of Cuba that Cuba made progress on education. Barack Obama was abroad. He was in a town meeting. He did not in any way suggest that there was anything positive about the Cuban government. Authoritarianism of any stripe is bad. But that is different than saying that governments occasionally do things that are good. And when dictatorships, whether it is the Chinese or the Cubans, do something good, you acknowledge that.
0: Okay, now, to be fair, to be fair, I think people have been a little too hard on Bernie on this, right? The Fidel Castro thing especially, because all he's saying is something that Barack Obama also alluded to, that Fidel Castro, as bad as he was, did some good things, like education. That's it, you know? Think of it like the count from Sesame Street. Just because you commend him for teaching kids math doesn't mean you're condoning the fact that he's a vampire who sucks the life out of untold numbers of people. How many dead drifters in the alley? One, two, three dead drifters. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> but at the same time, Bernie, you have to admit, when people ask you about Castro, that's not the best time to mention his record on education. It's bad timing. Right? If your wife is yelling at you saying, I can't believe you cheated on me with all those ugly women, that's not the time to be like, some of them were beautiful. <laughs> some of them were really beautiful. That's not the time. And that wasn't the only attack that Bernie had to face. Because you see, now that he's the front runner, he has everyone else gunning for him.
3: Vladimir Putin thinks that Donald Trump is should be president of the United States, and that's why Russia is helping you get oh, elected so Mr. you'll Bloomberg. lose to him. I am
0: not looking forward to a scenario where it comes down to Donald Trump with his nostalgia for the social order of the 1950s and Bernie Sanders with a nostalgia for the revolutionary politics of the 1960s. Bernie, in fact, hasn't passed much of anything. I do not
4: think that this is the best person to lead the ticket. But I think I would make a better president than
3: Bernie. I, I'm, I'm hearing my name mentioned a little bit tonight. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Bernie's a legend, man, because your name wasn't being mentioned, Bernie. People were screaming it at you. Although I guess for him, shouting is so normal that when people shout at him, he's like, what a pleasant conversation for a change. I'm so sick of everyone whispering. Yeah, people's normal voices are like ASMR to him. Now, look, it's it's not surprising. It's not surprising that this happened. It's not surprising that all the moderates went after Bernie Sanders tonight, right? Because what's clear in this campaign is that as long as so many moderates stay in the race, None of them are going to overtake Bernie Sanders. So they're going after him, but, but they're splitting the votes amongst themselves. The only way one of them is going to be able to beat Bernie is if all the other ones drop out. The problem is that none of them can seem to agree on who that person should be.
4: Some of these candidates are going to have to start dropping out. People like Amy Klobuchar, people like Tom Steyer.
0: The Buttigieg campaign is calling on Mike Bloomberg to drop out of the race. This comes after a Bloomberg campaign memo suggested that Biden, Buttigieg and Klobuchar actually drop out. Of course, I think it would be beneficial if everybody else were to drop out and support, say, my campaign.
2: How do you convince
0: Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg to get out of the race?
2: It's really time now for Klobuchar to get out of the race. I have the third biggest number. Um, So why would I get out? Yeah,
0: everyone knows someone has to leave, but nobody wants to be the one to do it. You know, it's like a super high stakes version of being the first one to hang up. It's just like, (laughs) you drop out first. No, you drop out first. No, you drop out first. No, you drop out. Look, I spent half a billion dollars on this campaign. You drop out first. (laughs) So look, it seems like as long as all the moderates decide to stay in the race, Bernie is gonna have a pretty clear path to win the nomination. And it seems like Bernie realizes it. I mean, just based on his new campaign ads.
2: Hi, I'm Bernie Sanders. I know the pundits are saying there's too many moderates in this race, but I think all of you are doing a great job. Amy Klobuchar, why would you drop out? You came in third that one time. That's what I call momentum. And Mayor Pete, if anyone says you should drop out, you tell them to go to hell in one of the seven languages you sort to of speak.
5: is some shit in ska.
2: Oh, and Mayor Bloomberg, keep spending all your money on those ads. If there's two things Americans love, it's you and watching commercials. And Tom Steyer, you should quit and stop calling me. It's getting creepy. I'm Bernie Sanders, and I endorse everyone staying in this race. All right,
1: everybody, we'll be right back.
2: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoking audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. at and
4: Live Nation presents Concert Week Visit LiveNation.com slash concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum41, 30 Seconds from Mars, Oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.
5: Looking for a fabulous fashion brand that celebrates you? Then look no further than Boston Proper, where styles are designed with you in mind. So you can look and feel amazing no matter the day, season, or occasion. At BostonProper.com, you'll find fashion that knows you best. For over 30 years, Boston Proper has been the fashion destination for confident women who want to elevate their look with unique, sophisticated clothing at affordable prices. Visit bostonproper.com today. Boston Proper. Wear it like no one else.
0: Welcome back to The Daily Show. One of the most interesting stories of the 2020 election has been the rise of Pete Buttigieg. And no matter what you think of his candidacy, you have to agree that it's pretty amazing that a gay man can be a serious contender for President of the United States. But what do LGBTQ voters think about this moment in American politics? Well, we sent Jabuki Young-White to sit down with some of them to find out.
1: I'm here in New York City, gay capital of the world, except for Berlin, San Francisco, or Congress. Here to talk to some LGBTQ voters, Anyway, I've come to the Leslie Lohman to talk with LGBTQ voters about finally getting the gay presidential candidate we've all dreamed of. So if someone told you 10 years ago that there was going to be a gay presidential candidate, how do you feel like you would have reacted? Because I know for me, I would have been like, who told you I'm gay? (laughs) Was it Kevin?
2: I would would have believed it, but I would think it would be a woman though.
1: 10 years ago, Barack Obama was still evolving about marriage. It's a real leap to think that 10 years later we would have a viable queer candidate for president of the United States. But being proud of Pete doesn't mean that we're voting for him. Raise your hand if you plan on voting for Mayor Pete in the primary.
2: I don't think it's possible for me.
1: There's nothing that he could do to make you vote for him? No. Our community actually has a bit of a shameful history in the sense that gay white men have historically marginalized the contributions of trans women and trans men and people of color. I am trans, and in you know, knowing that there's going to be a, you know, a cis gay presidential candidate doesn't do anything to make my life any safer as a trans woman. And that's the divide. According to my unofficial poll, the type of gay you are determines whether you trust Pete to represent you. A lot of people will say that he's not queer enough, or he's not gay enough. What does that even mean? He's gay enough if we can hold his feet to the fire to make sure that our voices are heard.
2: I live in South Bend, and I work with Black Lives Matter South Bend, and those are, they don't have trust for Pete.
1: So you want him to wear a leather harness, and you want him and Chasen to open their relationship, and you want them to be poly.
2: We just want him to actually pay attention to the policing problem.
1: I had a face-to-face with him and I asked him, what are you doing about the police brutality in Indiana? And he kept saying, well this is what I want you to do, I want you to push me, I I don't need to push you. You know what needs to be done. Okay, so you're not asking him to be more gay, you just want him to care about the margins. Correct, I want him to care about the margins and leave the doctors at home. Pete's rainbow booty shorts are actually just a pair of relaxed, fit Dockers, which is why I wonder if his mainstream appeal is that you can kind of forget he's gay. As much as we can say that Pete's brand of queerness has problematic aspects, don't you think that that actually makes him electable? For example, look at this. That is my brand of queerness. We don't have a picket fence, but that looks like a picture of my husband and me. The word that's not there is first gay family. You know, the word that's there is first family. That is something America can, can get behind, I think. I see it as a disappointingly sanitized version of what it means to be gay. To a lot of critics, this looks like this. Ah. Oh. They're less a gay couple and more so just like uh, two guys who decided to make granola in their kitchen. They're clearly gay. And if that's not gay enough for the people in this country, I don't know what would be. So it sounds like the takeaway of this conversation should be if Buttigieg does not eat his husband's on live TV, he is not gay enough for me.
2: I'm out. (laughs) How about this,
1: gay people, we're basically straight.
2: No. I mean, the takeaway is also that for a lot of voters, you can't just choose gay. You also have to think about your race.
1: Okay, Pete Buttigieg. Black people don't like him because of the police stuff and homophobia or something.
2: Black people like him, and a lot of black people don't.
1: Pete Buttigieg. A lot of black people don't like him, but some do. Can you imagine how fun it will be to watch a gay, married, Midwestern mayor destroy Donald Trump? Okay, I hear you, Pete Buttigieg. I'm taking Trump to Pound Town. No one wants to see it. No. So then, what is it? I think the takeaway should be that um, the LGBT community is not a monolith, and uh, you know, the first gay presidential candidate means very different things to very different people in our community. Whether you believe Pete is the visibility we spent decades fighting for, or just another centrist white guy who's easy on the eyes and the police, the gay community is making it clear: if you want our vote, you better work. Bit. I can't. I'm not saying that. I can't say that. What the does that even mean?
0: Oh. Taboo, out white, everybody. We'll be right back.
2: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. at
4: Live Nation presents Concert Week.
0: Welcome back to The Daily Show. My guest tonight is a former member of Congress, White House chief of staff, and two-term mayor of Chicago, whose new book is called The Nation City, Why Mayors Are Now Running the World. Please welcome Rahm Emanuel. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Before- before we get into the book, uh, we just watched a Democratic debate, um, <laughs> which has gotten a lot more exciting than it, than it has been in the past few debates. You've been involved in Democratic politics specifically for a very long time. How do you think the Democratic race is going?
3: Uh, well, I think here's how I look at it. it. What's interesting, just one observation, is that viewership of the debates is up, but participation in the primaries is not. It's not beating 20, 2008 when we had a record turnout. So that concerns me. In 2018, 2019, we had record energy. And right now, uh, the debates are not producing the type of energy you want to see. So I have a small flashing yellow light saying a little concern on that. It can always flip, but right now I'm a little concerned about that. Oh, right. And also the other thing is that I have a re- new respect for my family Thanksgiving dinner. It looks a lot calmer compared to this. <laughs>
0: It does seem like it, it, it has become a lot more testy. You know, Bloomberg stepping into the race might have been a catalyst, but it feels like as the field narrows, people are going to be fighting. The stakes a little are bit. higher. Yeah. You were in the DCCC. You have been part of helping Democrats win major elections, you know, helping B- Bill Clinton become president, working with Barack Obama as his chief of staff. Here's a question that maybe you would be mostly uniquely positioned to answer We have two mayors on that stage. Three. Three previous mayors with right. Bernie Sanders, yes, but two mayors yeah. you who know, just stepped out of being mayor saying that they want to run the, the country as president. Yeah. Does a mayor have the prerequisite experience to run a
3: country? You've worked with a president and you've been a mayor. How much of it gives I, you the experience you need? Well, first of all, it, a lot. Um, I would, you know, the number one job before being for president was governor. All four governors have uh, been thrown off the island, basically, and you're now left with mayor. In England, the mayor of London has just become the prime minister. Right. And the experiences of dealing with, when you think about where you live, where you work, how you get to work, the things around your neighborhood, from libraries to parks, those are all services local government deal with. When you look at the major issues on climate change, cities are leading. When you look at the major cities, Chicago, we made community college free for the students of the city of Chicago who got to be average. We made pre-K universal for all our four year olds. So the things that are major in the sense of inclusive economic growth, climate change, immigration policy, mayors are taking that lead. And the other piece of this, two other pieces of this. The second piece is you actually fail in the job and you learn then from that experience. And legislating, it's not really about failure. Give one, I used to say to President Clinton, if we knew in the first year of the first term what we knew by the first, by the, uh, first year of the second term, we'd be geniuses. Right. And if you go back in history, think about President Kennedy. He had the Bay of Pigs, a mess. Realized the Joint Chiefs didn't know what they were talking about, took a study of it, and when it came to the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, mm-hmm. he knew how to handle it. And mayors stumble all the time. And then the other piece of that, and then pick themselves up, learn from it, and apply a future. And then the but third but piece, wait,
0: let me ask you this before you go to uh, that, though. So if, if that's the case, if mayors are
3: running uh, the world, then why is everyone running to be president? Well, because it still has... The challenge you take on, not, everybody, not every mayor is running to be president, but I think the real thing is uh, what is happening is you have a global economy, mm-hmm. but all politics is local. And 75 percent of the American people have confidence in their local government and that number's in the mid-20s for national government. Uh, and I do also think one other thing. We're falling, we're really ripping apart. In the city of Chicago, this is true in New York, it's true in LA, it's true in a lot of cities of all sizes. We have 145 languages spoken in our city many different faiths, cultures, backgrounds. But the aspiration of a parent, regardless of where they came from, is the same for their child. And mayors form a community and a sense of belonging. And in a period of time of alienation and distance, that sense of belonging gives you something that is really an asset going forward, where your diversity really can become a strength rather than a liability. So let me ask you this, then, about
0: the book, because I understand what you're saying about, you know, being a mayor who's bringing people together. In the book, you talk about the journey that you've been on as a mayor. You talk about the challenges that you face, you know, on a day-to-day level, working for your constituents directly. Is there something that makes being a a mayor
3: unique in how you're dealing with people versus just larger issues? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a part of the book where I talk about, I mean, you celebrate together you have pain together, mm-hmm. you have uh, joy, moments of joy, and then you work through a lot of issues. You are in touch with the people, and in many ways, I mean, people give you, especially in Chicago, there's thumbs up and there's another digit they can also tell you, and that happens all the time. <laughs> uh, and I think that happens in the, that was cleaned up version for me. I really right. want, I'm proud of myself. That's oh, no, not, I'm that's gonna... very unusual for me. <laughs> uh, so the fact is, that's what happens. And, but also you can be there When, and I will say this, when I created the Chicago Star Scholarship, you got to be average, we make community college, transportation, books free. I saw the relief on parents' face that they didn't have to pick which child got a chance to go to college. They didn't have to take a second mortgage on their home to give their child a chance at the American dream. And the relief of the sense that they could be a good parent Mm -hmm. and see what they could never get for themselves but for their children, that can only happen... At a local level. So now, you, I would so love you, to have had a federal partner, right? But I had to make sure every chance every child had a chance of that future. And you and you do talk about that, and you have been given a lot of credit for what you've done in the education
0: space in Chicago. At the same time, you've taken a lot of fire, you know, for closing in education, right? In education as well. But you've, you've taken a lot of fire for closing mm. down schools that were predominantly black mm. or Latino. People have said, you know, Mayor, why did you close down those schools mm-hmm. in areas where people needed it the most? You know how important it is right. to have black and brown kids in school learning, growing. You closed those schools down because you said they were underperforming. A lot of the teachers went on strike and they said you weren't catering to their needs. Where do you think you could
3: have done better or what do you think you could have done differently? So the first part is when I ran in 2011, Chicago had the shortest school day and the shortest school year in the United States of America. I made a pledge to get that done. That our children were not going to be cheated three years of education compared to a child in Houston. Now, I could have said, hey, when I got elected, this is really hard, and then people be angry, I gave up on a pledge. Mm-hmm. I made that pledge and I wanted to see it through. It led to a seven day strike, but in the end of the day, our graduation rate went from 56 to nearly 80%. Our reading scores and math scores for all kids of all backgrounds rose and sometimes in many ways set national standards. So being a mayor, you're gonna, if, it's you, if all you want to be loved, don't run for that job. Right. If you want to make a decision where the decisions you make and you put your thumb on the scale, and the difference between a 56 percent graduation rate and an 80 percent graduation rate is kids can believe in themselves and they have a chance at a future. Did and you, that's what ever, public life is about. Right. But do you, do
0: you ever do you ever wonder why, you know, people in Chicago, not all of them, I cannot speak for all of them. You know more than them, obviously. But but in Chicago, there was there was a term that some people used for you, where they would say Rahm was an amazing mayor for the one yeah. percent. You know, and you knew that yourself. You've even spoken about that. Where do you think that came from?
3: Well, because we, we did a lot of things, and let me say this. We never get a subsidy any of the sports teams. We expanded the minimum wage. We created universal full-day pre-K. Mm-hmm. We also eliminated all the tax subsidies that governments were getting, uh, companies were getting, rather. Right. And so I can understand the charge, but I also know the record, and I know the difference in Chicago public schools, where when you graduate high school and go co- to community college, there's nobody in the 1% getting that. I get the politics of it. Right. But I also know when you made a major dent in the food deserts where there were no grocery stores within a five-mile of a neighborhood and a community on the south side or the west side, that was not just a job and that was not just a grocery store. That was also the respect of that community. That comes with politics, and right. I get that.
0: Let me, let me ask you about an interesting trend and dilemma that America faces. On the stage tonight, we had two, you know, as you said, three former mayors with Bernie Sanders, Again, but, but two who say the mayor was their last public office job. Mm-hmm. And those two are also the two that are taking the most flack for their relationships with the black communities that they served and the police and how they treated them. You yourself are a mayor who's come under fire for the way mm-hmm. your police treated the black community in your city. You know the Laquan McDonald case was one where people said you you could have done a better job in releasing the video, you could have been, done a better job of communicating with the community and it felt like you were protecting the police. Is it the case in America where mayors seem to be protecting the police more than their constituents?
3: No, well, the other thing I would say is you saw that Amy Globachar had a uh, background as a prosecutor. She's also come on the fire. So if you're involved in that in one aspect, you're gonna get hit on that. And every mayor, as well as in the prosecutors, are making efforts to get both good public safety, right. which is the number one priority for, as your responsibility, mm-hmm. as well as do it in a way that is good policing. You work at it every day. There's not just a point you hit at it. And the fact is, whether it's Mike Bloomberg or Mayor Pete, Amy Globachar, others who also are getting criticized, uh, Joe Biden for his support of violence against women, but also the 94 Crime Act, people are now coming under attack with that, and people are looking at it different. And then the question is, how do you apply those efforts going forward to find the basis of community policing?
0: So if if you're looking back— yeah, uh, I, I would I'd be interested to know because I, I agree with you in life. You look back and you go, like, man, I could have done something different. I wish I could have changed that. Mm-hmm. You, you do talk about that in the book. You talk about how you wish you could have changed some of the, the ways you treated the mm-hmm. policing issues or how you would have yeah. dealt with them. I, I have always been fascinated by this when I talk to mayors or read books of mayors mm-hmm. once they've left office. Is it the case that as mayors, there's a part of you that is afraid to go up against your police unions because of how much power they hold in reelecting you or or is it really just a symbiotic relationship where the mayor goes, I'm with the police no matter what?
3: No, I, actually, I, no, I think, I, just, I don't want to speak for all the mayors, but I would say this. Making a major change in both the laws and the culture mm-hmm. while also executing on public safety, both doing both of those simultaneously, not one at the expense of the other, takes a tremendous amount of leadership. So prior to uh, everything happening in Chicago in 2016, I the first city ever to make a volunteer agreement with the ACLU to check policing, whether it was done right. We did the safer commission. And we also did the first ever, only ever, city to do reparations for prior acts of police department 20 years prior to my tenure. No city's ever done that. I thought we had addressed it. The problem and the depth of distrust was much deeper than I accepted and understood. And while we were fighting crime every day, visiting a parent who was in the hospital alone, seeing the depth of what happened and being isolated because you as a parent could not protect your child, what mm-hmm. happened on the streets, that happens. And then at the same time, you're trying to make changes to the police department. You're trying to do both of those. And so, it doesn't. what you understand is that the problem is a lot deeper than people understood and appreciated. And the fact is you have to make changes because policing needed some of the insurance, oversight and regulations that had not kept up with community policing and make it true community policing.
0: I have one final question for you before we let you go. I could talk to you forever about the book and your and your job, but you did it. Uh, from the few things you've said, not just in the interview but in the book, you've said it's not easy. It's a thankless job. Everyone's going to hate you at the end of it. You're going to do your best and you're going to work your hardest. It's knowing what like you know com- now, it's not like a comedy show. Yes, <laughs> knowing what you know now, huh? it could be like a comedy show. Knowing what you know now, would you do it again?
3: Oh, absolutely. Let me say this: I've had the greatest public life working for a senior advisor of President Clinton, Congress, chief of staff for President Obama, mayor. Mayor over here, all those three together, mayor's far better. The highs are unbelievable, the lows are unbelievable, but as mayor of the city of Chicago, I now know the children at the age of four, not at the age of six, get an education. We added four years to a child's education. You can't do anywhere and you know the trajectory of their lives Mm -hmm. because you did that. You were willing to spend your political capital and your popularity To make a difference in a child's life, but former life, I was going to become an early childhood educator. Not that I would recommend you give your kids time with me, okay, (laughs) in that effort. But having known that, the known that you can make and take on a battle and change a person's life and their trajectory. You know, there's a saying in Rabbi uh, Hillel, who are you if you're not for yourself? What are you if you're only for yourself? If not now, then when? My late father said that to me on my bar mitzvah. And he says, your responsibility now that you become a Jew and an adult is to know that you can make a difference in somebody else's life. That is the most rewarding thing you can do in public life, is give somebody else a chance of having a better life. I loved it.
0: Thank you so much for being on the show. The Nation City is available now. Rahm Emanuel, everybody. daily show with Trevor Noah ears edition watch the daily show weeknights at 11 10 central on comedy central and the comedy central app watch full episodes and videos at the follow us on Facebook Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to the daily show on YouTube for
2: exclusive content and more this has been a comedy central podcast
4: live nation presents concert week